Hello and welcome to Social X, the monthly podcast from Humentum. My name's George Miller, and my guest in this episode is Oliver May, who's Director of Forensic for Deloitte Australia. This conversation was recorded earlier this year, when COVID-19 was still just a small blip on the radar. So small, it didn't figure in our discussion. With so much of our attention this year subsequently on the virus and its repercussions, perhaps it's no bad thing to be reminded of another challenge as old as humanity, corruption. It's a challenge that can be hard to face, because it's so antithetical to the mission and a flashing red light to funders. But experts in the sector estimate that between 2 and 5% by value of any given aid operation is lost to fraud and corruption, which adds up to a huge amount of money globally every year. Which is where Oliver comes in. Oliver helps organisations worldwide to reduce fraud and corruption risk, particularly in challenging and complex environments. He has a wealth of experience in the global non-profit sector. Initially an award-winning criminal investigator and analyst with the UK's serious organised crime agency, Oliver was then head of counter-fraud for Oxfam GB. There, he designed and implemented its first integrated framework to reduce the risk of fraud and corruption across its 54 operating countries and 31,000 staff and volunteers. He continues to help international aid organisations to manage integrity risks, including terrorist diversion. There's more on that in the interview. And he's worked with international and local NGOs, civil society organisations, regulators, institutional donors and the UN. Oliver is also the author of two books, Fighting Fraud and Corruption in the Humanitarian and Global Development Sector and, just published, Terrorist Diversion, a Guide to Prevention and Detection for NGOs, co-authored with Paul Kerwell. When I spoke to Oliver, I began by asking him why he calls the blog where he writes about fighting fraud and corruption Second Marshmallow. The title comes from a number of studies in the 60s and 70s into delayed gratification. And what the researchers would do would be that they'd, they'd give a, a child a small snack, like a, like a marshmallow, and say, this is your marshmallow, you can have this right now. But if you can wait for a short time, say 15 minutes, and not eat it, you can have two marshmallows, you can have a second marshmallow. And they found that children who were able to invest their time in waiting for the second marshmallow in longitudinal studies later would go on to be successful in a number of ways, more so than the children that ate the marshmallow. And I see an interesting parallel here between that and the investment in counter-fraud systems and practices in the international aid sector. Organisations um, who can invest in those kinds of business support functions can unlock more resources to help their beneficiaries. They can get that second marshmallow. So does that sort of indicate a sort of public mission, this desire to communicate because you've published um, a book and you've got another book forthcoming and also this this blog that you, you feel there's a message that needs to be got out there that is perhaps at the moment not being sufficiently got out there? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's there's been huge progress um, in the aid sector around fraud and corruption over the last sort of five years or so, but there's still a lot more that we can do. And there's so much that aid organizations can put in place and can do differently to minimize fraud and corruption. So all of my books and indeed that blog are good news stories. They, they talk about what things that are usually thought of as negative, but actually it's a positive thing. So, Ollie, I wanted to take you back the best part of 20 years to when you were um, a religious studies and theology student in Manchester. Would the student back then studying theology be surprised to discover the, the direction your career has taken? Or were there already indicators that, that this sort of work might be of interest to you? Well, I think um, that that young gentleman didn't really know what he wanted to be when he grew up. So basically anything would surprise him. Um, but actually, I think there are there's a lot of similarities between the kind of inquiry that you do in the humanities and particularly the investigation that I later found myself doing. So, for example, I spent most of my degree focusing on early Christian history. And I remember analyzing text to create a timeline of the life of the Apostle Paul. And for anybody who knows anything about that, it's an extremely difficult thing to do. There's a lot of ambiguity in the texts. Um, that's very similar to the kind of investigative work that I've found, found myself doing later on. And similarly, what sort of led me to the study of religion is the same thing that's, that's led me to all the work that I've done since, which is a deep interest in people. I grew up in uh, in the Middle East in Oman and Saudi Arabia, which I was hugely privileged to do. It was a fantastic experience for a little boy, and I remember, you know, experiencing these these different cultures and these different backgrounds. And that really, I think, has led to kind of the guiding principle of my life around empathy and compassion and that interest in people. And really, you can't do anti-fraud and corruption work without thinking about human factors. Human factors pervade all of my work both around how people commit fraud and corruption, but also how people fail to prevent it. So there's a there's an aspect where you're thinking about human motivation. You're not you're not just looking at lines of cold numbers and seeing where there's some discrepancy. You're actually trying to think about the human actions that that lie behind them and maybe concealed within them. That's absolutely right. And there's so much that we can do to help shape how people in our organizations think, feel and act both about fraud and about the controls that prevent fraud. We can look at how we influence culture. We can look at how we design controls with behavioral science in mind. Remaining in the early 2000s for a moment, tell me how you took that first step, you know, from being that that student who wasn't quite sure what he wanted to do with his life, but having certain, you know, sort of intellectual and and other interests or aptitudes. How did you take the first step into investigating? It was serious organised crime that you began investigating, is that right? That's right. That's, um, I, uh, I, well, actually, I started off in the Navy. Then uh, I, I found that I wanted to do something a bit more cerebral to me, a bit more interesting to me. And I, I moved into policing. I've always had a passion for justice. I've always had a love of, of mystery and, and discovery. And there's always been a, a sense of, of service and purpose in my family. You know, we're a military family and a teaching family. And uh, policing seemed like a great way to have a positive impact on the world around me. So I ended up in the Serious Organised Crime Agency in the UK, which is now the National Crime Agency, tackling you know issues like money laundering and fraud and drug trafficking and human trafficking and, and firearms supply. It was a, a really fantastic part of my career. 
I'm, I'm really curious about this because in a way it's a sort of the underpinning of all that would come later. Are you formally trained in investigative techniques or is there a lot of learning on the job or a bit of both? I think there's a combination. So yes, um, you know, I'm, I'm formally trained as an intelligence analyst and uh, and an investigator. Um, I'm accredited in that respect. But I, I think you know to be really good at investigation, you need to have a forensic mindset. You know, a, a professional skepticism, be detail oriented, uh, you know, have a kind of a shrewdness to you. Um, but you've also got to have that real interest in people. Um, and be courageous as well. You know, they, they, we talk about, you know, investigating without fear or favor. And in the humanitarian sector, that's that's just as much a challenge um, at times as it is in policing. And I guess you put your finger on something quite important there, because I suppose there is a quite a strong human temptation to turn a blind eye to things, not to want to see the full extent of a problem, to think if something isn't flagrant, then perhaps it isn't all that serious. I mean, that, that seems to be a a motif that run, runs through a lot of the things that you, you've, you've written about. That's right. And I think, you know, we, we talk a lot about the rationalization of fraud and corruption, but, but there's also a way in which we rationalize not dealing with it and, and almost enabling it. Um, I talk about, for example, hierarchies of values where when we are doing, you know, truly life-saving work and, you know, we're immensely passionate about what we're doing and we can be very fearful about the consequences of discovering fraud. Sometimes we can fail to invest as much as we should in fraud control or even worse, we can carry risks which we really shouldn't be doing um, because of that perceived impact on the mission. So, at some stage, you'd had a number of years with um, the investigation of serious organised crime in the UK. You decided to make the switch to the, the the charity sector and you joined Oxfam GB. So tell me what sort of lay behind that decision and what, what they brought you in to do. Sure. So I started to lose the link between, you know, what I was doing and having a positive impact on the world around me. And, you know, I had some experiences in, in policing as well and seeing the long tail of organized crime and, and wider crime. And that sort of, you know, distilled my passion from the broad category of justice down into the subcategory of social justice within that. But I, you know, I, when I got to Oxfam, I have to admit it, it was a substantial culture shock. You know, I'd, I'd come from a background that was very skeptical about people, that was very hierarchical, that valued compliance heavily um, and was highly disciplined. Whereas I was coming into a culture that was fundamentally optimistic about people and valued relationships and valued getting the job done and, uh, and and valued innovation. And, you know, and I think when people move from the public sector or the private sector into um, the not-for-profit sector, some people can get lost in that culture gap. But I would urge those people to, to lean into that and keep going because there are things that those other cultures can really offer the non-profit sector. And there are real strengths to some of the more common cultures in the non-profit sector as well. And this is about working together to shape and blend a culture that harnesses the best of, um, of what we can do. So the transference of a more cynical attitude to the not-for-profit sector wouldn't be a good outcome. But are you saying that a more sceptical attitude might be or a, a more inquisitive attitude perhaps about human motivations or not not always thinking the best of human motivations 
Yeah, I think that a culture of trust doesn't have to be at the expense of vigilance. You know, cultures of trust are important and it's not a problem to have a culture of trust. But we've also got to be realistic and honest about humans. Humans are complicated. People can find themselves on the pathway to things that that might surprise them at a different point in their life. And we need to be careful about the kind of temptations that get put in people's way. So yes, I would say it's about a professional skepticism, but that's not a negative thing. That should go hand in hand with the culture of trust. Now, in your first book about tackling fraud and corruption in the the NGO sector, you recount an anecdote about that very first day at Oxfam. And I thought it was quite, it's quite a telling one, but perhaps laid out the extent of the problem or the the challenge that you were going to face. Can you just um, recount that uh, here? Sure, absolutely. Um, so I, you know, I sort of I finished at um, at the uh, Northwestern offices of the Serious Organised Crime Agency. I, I guess on the Friday, and I turned up at Oxfam in leafy Oxford on the Monday. And you know, coming from a potentially quite austere policing environment, I walked into the lobby um, of Oxfam House, and at the time there was a huge legend across the wall that simply read "Hope." Straight away, it was obvious this was going to be a very different employer. And I met my new boss for coffee in the canteen. You know, we had a bit of a natter and then he looked at me and he said, look, there's something you need to know. And I was to find that my predecessor, the last head of counter fraud, had in fact committed fraud and had stolen just over £60,000 in an invoicing scheme. And as you spent longer within that culture and got to know it and how it worked, did you discover that that was simply the tip of an iceberg, that there were lots of other different species of of fraud and corruption that were happening throughout that organisation? You know, not to not to pick on it, but just to take it as a test case that you know very well. Actually, I found that in the wake of that incident, Oxfam was tremendously reflective and tremendously open to doing new things and putting in place new investments to manage the risk of fraud and corruption. And actually, Oxfam did exactly the right thing in that circumstance. It put in place remedial controls and it was open with the public and supporters about what had happened and it it sought a prosecution and ultimately the individual concerned served a custodial sentence and that's actually really hard to do when you've got a compelling media story like that where someone very senior has done something terrible and very ironic there could have been a huge temptation not to be so open about that but Oxfam did the right thing. Given that it's difficult to actually identify, how hard is it to put a figure on the amount of money that is being lost to fraud and corruption within the sector? So this is a this is a great question, I think, because this issue sits at the heart of a lot of the trouble with the sector's response to fraud and corruption. Because these things, as part of their DNA, hide and masquerade, it's notoriously difficult to estimate undetected loss. And that dark figure, I think, is one of the key reasons uh, for the underestimation of the issue in the sector. When I was writing my first book, I spoke to a very wide range of people uh, across the sector, and we looked at different models of uh, calculating undetected fraud and different figures. And the, the most consistency in terms of what people thought were reasonable in the sector was around the figure of 2 to 5% by value of, uh, of any given aid operation. Now, when you think how much money flows through NGOs and flows through the aid sector, that's actually an enormous amount of money. And there's a lot that we can do to reduce that. 
How does that figure compare with the the corporate sector? Am, am I right in thinking it is broadly similar? And if that's so, is it the case that there is a, there's a sort of almost an irreducible percentage? It's almost like a cost of doing business that that organisations simply by their nature and their complexity are vulnerable to some degree of fraud and corruption? I think that all organisations are vulnerable to fraud and corruption, and there will always be a vulnerability to fraud and corruption. But our challenge as uh, um, stewards of the public's resources and our donor resources is to reduce uh, those incidents and that value by as much as possible. And there are some real open goals um, in the aid sector. You know, things like underinvestment in business support, you know, prevalence of myths, things like this, which which we can actually correct. They're relatively easy to correct by comparison to what a lot of people think. And it's incumbent upon us as stewards to do that. So th- those open goals, I'm interested in, in hearing a little bit more about them. I mean, are, are some of them inherent to the nature of the way that NGOs operate and, and others perhaps just open because they no one's really thought about investing the, the time or the money to put a goalkeeper in front? Well, the one that, that keeps coming back in you know every conversation I have around the sector, and I, I consult widely across um, you know, the aid sector to you know international NGOs and their donors and their regulators and their partners, but the one that, that keeps coming up is this systemic divorce of business support costs and operations costs, or what people might think of as, as frontline delivery. And this is really a, a systemic myth. The reality is, you know, it, the lead in the pencil might do the writing, but you're not going to get much done unless you've got that wooden shaft and the eraser and the sharpener. And yet, you know, things like donor contracts and political activism and public attitudes and, you know, financial reporting, all these things seem to conspire to devalue business support in favor of what's perceived as frontline delivery. But actually, it's that business support that makes delivery happen safely. And that includes costs associated with fraud control. And that's functions like HR and IT and accounting and audit. I mean, that that was very interesting. I was going to ask you, if you have ways in which you encourage NGOs to think differently about the costs they might be investing in fraud prevention. And your your pencil metaphor is, is a very nice one. I guess to continue that metaphor, the, there's always going to be an ongoing discussion about how much wood you need in that pencil, and also how much criticism you're going to expose yourself to from political and media critics, if you see are seen to be over-investing in, in non-frontline activity. Well, one of the things that um, I don't see enough of still in the sector is meaningful and good quality fraud and corruption risk assessment. Um, and if you've really understood the risks in your project or your program or your organization, then you're in a much better position to understand what level of control, what level of um, you know, business support you need to manage and modify those risks. Without a risk assessment, you know, there's there's no way of knowing whether any of that is effective or proportionate. It's how you end up with vulnerability on the one hand or bureaucracy on the other. So one of the key parts of getting that balance right is truly understanding risks. That doesn't mean having these massive and complicated risk management frameworks that you know are just treated as yet another thing to do. It means on a really basic level, really understanding what could go wrong what you might be exposed to, and therefore what you need to do about it. You talked about the the fact that the percentage 
of income that that fraud represents can add up to you know hundreds of millions, even billions of pounds. Can you say a little bit, Ollie, about the nature of that fraud? I mean, is it as varied as as human ingenuity is, or is it mainly small scale and therefore more difficult to detect than fraud on the grand scale that we might be familiar with seeing in the trials in the corporate sector that end up in the the high courts? Well, in a sense, you know, the battle against fraud is the battle against fundamental human dishonesty. And the only limit to a fraud scheme is a fraudster's creativity. All they need to look at is an organization's policies, procedures and systems and concoct some exotic scheme to alleviate them of their funds. But I think one of the one of the bigger myths in the sector is that low value equals low risk. And that's not true in a couple of ways. First of all, you get a salami slicing effect where if you have you know, a large number of small incidents that actually adds up to quite an overall high value, but also you have to look at the circumstances of each incident. If, for example, uh, an individual steals their uh, NGO uh, issue mobile phone, that might appear on a register as a relatively small matter. But if that individual is a finance manager, or a logistics manager, then the risk presented by that incident is actually very high because that person could do all sorts of other things. Now, what about, I think you quote this, or you cite this example in in your first book. What about the situation, you know, where it seems to be that a little bit of bending of rules is actually contributing to the fulfillment of the broader mission? I think you quote the example of the border guard who, who perhaps expects a backhander in order to let a truck cross a border and that truck may be carrying medical supplies that are vitally needed. Is that sort of grey area, that sort of thinking about wider mission versus the difficulty of operating in, in often very testing circumstances, is that something that, that comes up a lot or is that a bit of a red herring that can just open the, the gates to abuse? Well, there are very few legal grey areas, if any, but there is a lot of of nuance and complexity. Some of the time, individuals find themselves in positions that they haven't been adequately trained for. Um, They don't fully understand the law. They don't fully understand what they could be doing. And that's a a way to avoid some of those situations. In others, there's a kind of a, a path of least resistance as well. I remember a conversation with a very experienced country director who told me that um, in a particular country, he wanted to bring in equipment and customs held the equipment and demanded the, the bribe. He refused to pay it. So customs impounded the equipment for three months, which started to endanger the project timelines. But he held his nerve um, and his team held their nerve. Um, and ultimately, customs released the equipment and never asked that organization for a bribe in that country again. And that's a really compelling success story because I think we there are so many horror stories and there's so much learned helplessness in the sector. We really need to champion these examples of doing the right thing at the right time. Um, and I think one of the issues that complicates the matter is this idea of, of zero tolerance, which I think as a term has become very problematic. It came from the world of, of politics and law enforcement, but now the sector is very sophisticated and we speak in terms of risk management language and it doesn't translate and instead it generates confusion and fear and I never really know what someone means actually when they say they have zero tolerance to fraud. I prefer to talk about the absolute minimum 
a rolling aspirational target that represents the lowest level of fraud that we could possibly achieve if we were doing everything that was reasonable to control the risks that we faced. So to stick with your example about the the person who found that the equipment had been impounded and wouldn't be released, in order to deal with a situation like that, where in the culture do you think you have to start in order for the person on the ground to have internalised the right sort of values and approach so that they do the, the, the best thing, the right thing in a circumstance like that? Does it go all the way to the top of the organisation? Well, it rather depends what we mean by the top, because many of our organizations operate devolved models of responsibility. And uh, many of our organizations have, you know, country offices where there may be parallel hierarchies to what we believe exists in our organization. Actually, these days, it can be more helpful to talk about the tone at the top, the mood at the middle and the beat at the bottom. And because that speaks to the reality that we are all stakeholders in um, our organizational culture. And the meaningful anti-fraud and corruption culture is created by work that addresses people all over our organization. It's not, it, it tone at the top is important, but it doesn't stop there. I guess that taps into your holistic approach that you argue for in your in your book on fraud and corruption, where you've got it at the back of the book, you've got a checklist of, of 32 questions. So who were you sort of aiming that checklist at principally? So the, the checklist in the book is for every international NGO in the world. The reality is that these principles around what is good practice are based in significant consensus. And they are entirely scalable. So whether you're a very large international NGO running huge contracts or you're a a very small organization working at a grassroots level, the basic principles are the same. And the holistic approach is about tackling fraud and corruption from all directions. Um, Ideally, we want to, first of all, deter people from committing fraud and corruption. If we can't deter them, we want to prevent it from happening. If we can't prevent it, then we want to detect it so we can manage the risk. And if we detect it, then we need to respond to it in a way that um, manages the risk of the incident, manages the risk that we create by responding to that, and maximizes the opportunities to get better at tackling fraud and corruption. And there's there's plenty of low-hanging fruit for international NGOs, things like you know, policy and, and training and awareness and due diligence can be relatively easily implemented. But it's best to start with a maturity review and a risk assessment so that you can inform your uh, priorities and recognize you know, everyone's different. So your organization will be different to the next one in terms of its vulnerabilities and what it needs to do. Uh, yeah, one, one phrase I, I wrote down when I was, I was reading, I think it was your second book, which is forthcoming, was organizations which have a low-risk maturity combined with a high risk appetite are especially vulnerable can you can you say what kind of organization that would typically be so um, that would be an organization that didn't have a strong understanding of how to identify and manage risks didn't have a set of organizational procedures that really enabled people working in programs to manage those risks, but was very happy to go into very high risk contexts indeed, such as you know rapid onset humanitarian emergencies, conflict zones, and uh, use you know models like remote program management. So those that's the jaws of trouble um, to have that low risk maturity but that high risk appetite. If I were to ask you, Ollie, 
what your sort of health report for the sector in general would be, you know, how high you would score it or how low you would score it in terms of its resilience to fraud and corruption? What what would you say looking across the, the whole landscape? I would say there's been significant progress in the last few years but there is a, a potential threat on the horizon, which is there's a potentially reduced focus on fraud and corruption in favour of the risks of the moment. Um, and that right now, for example, is you know, safeguarding and prevention of sexual exploitation yes. and abuse. And it's really, it's really heartening to see the focus on that. And that's really encouraging. But the sector must recognise that the issues around sexual exploitation and abuse and issues around other risks like fraud and corruption, to an extent terrorist financing, things like health and safety, these all have common denominators and enablers, things like culture and, and risk maturity. And if the sector only charges after one particular risk domain at a time, it will constantly find itself on the back foot. What we really need to do now and and what the crisis of integrity should make us do now is take a step back and look at how as organisations we're truly managing all our risks. Does the corporate sector have useful lessons to teach the NGOs? I mean, I'm thinking about things like international standards and financial reporting. Are are there things there that, that really should be ported over? Well, Humentum's initiative around um, international financial reporting is is truly exciting because the positive effects on on fraud control are are pretty clear. But I would say that actually the the types of fraud and corruption that we see in the aid sector are very, very similar to those in the corporate sector. Um, And therefore, um, you know, the opportunity to to cross-pollinate between the two sectors is really exciting. And that's something that I'm privileged to be able to do in my work. I I work not only with um, clients in international aid, but also with governments and, um, and with the corporate sector. And what about technology? How big a role does technology have to play in detection and prevention? Well, as with all things, there are opportunities and risks. So certainly technology potentially presents some exciting opportunities. Data analytics is, is really exciting. And, um, you know, there are other forms of monitoring that are very exciting. But, but as with all things, they're not a magic bullet and they bring their own risks. So with things like data, for example, we really need to think about, you know, what could potentially happen to that data. It could be stolen. And that could present, you know, significant risks to vulnerable communities and marginalized communities. So yes, there are opportunities, but we also need to think risk about those. Now, you've got a new book coming later this year, Ollie, on terrorism diversion, again, focusing on how it can be detected and prevented. In what way would you say it is useful to sort of get a grip on thinking about this problem? I mean, is it useful to see it as a subspecies of the issues we've been talking about or as something with a really distinctive set of characteristics of its own? I think, you know, in a sense, terrorist diversion is very similar to, you know, wider fraud and theft. It's it's just the destination of the mm. assets, funds and stock that's different. But it does have its own unique complexity. So there are very significant legal issues around it. It also comes with perspective baggage that 
other areas of, of integrity risk don't. So, you know, for example, you know, what, what is a terrorist? There isn't even agreement on what we mean by terrorist. So that's why the book yeah. uses a different term to refer to the end users of, of, of diverted resources. Um, and similarly, it comes with significant ethical dilemmas. Does it have typical mechanisms? Or again, as with, with fraud more generally, is it only limited by human ingenuity? Well, the, the book identifies 16 typologies for diversion and then goes on to look at how NGOs and aid organizations can meet those risks and tackle those risks, which really needs to be the starting point. But I don't think that we are seeing an increase in, or I don't think we'd be able to say that we're seeing an increase in terrorist diversion. We simply don't have the data. But what is putting the issue at the forefront is the intensifying consequences of incidents, which are presenting some really challenging situations now for the aid community and for NGOs in particular. So the book is about taking a pragmatic and practical approach to dealing with these issues in the short and medium term. And of course, unsurprisingly, it will tend to be found in areas of the world which are already troubled and have multiple challenges ongoing. Well, one of the common assumptions is that it's something that, that takes place in conflict zones and that's where all the risk lives. And certainly, you know, historically the risk in Afghanistan and Somalia has been very high and today the risk in Syria and Yemen is very challenging. But actually it can be surprising in, you know, what other context the risk lives in. So um, you need to look at places that are adjacent to high-risk zones as well because a lot of fundraising happens there. Um, and also look at countries with forgotten conflicts and, and forgotten issues. The Philippines, for example, um, is a country that does have counterterrorism challenges, but it's often not one which is at the forefront of people's minds when thinking about this issue. You've talked at various points in our conversation about risk. It's, a, it's obviously a recurrent theme in this area. And you've written about the need to shift from a compliance-based to a risk-based model of tackling this issue. So can you can you just say a little bit about what you mean by that shift? I contrast a risk-based approach and a compliance-based approach. Um, now, there is legal compliance and risk in both approaches, but it's about where we start and what we focus on. In a compliance-based approach, we primarily see diversion as a legal and donor issue, something we need to comply with. And in a risk-based approach, we start with the actual risks that our organization actually faces. And then we carry out obligations mapping to complement what we're doing about those risks by putting in place systems to comply with, um, with, with donor obligations and with the law. And there are really compelling advantages to a risk-based approach over a compliance-based approach. A risk-based approach recognizes the disposition of each NGO, each country context, the aid modalities, the projects that we're doing. It embeds proportionality. Often the things that you put in place in a risk-based approach are going to harmonize with legal and donor requirements, um, and it encourages a focus on humanitarian opportunity. It's about what we can do, not about what we can't do. Whereas a compliance-based approach can misdirect risk assessment. It can mean that we are actually managing the donor's risks rather than the risks of our own organization. It can contribute to a chilling effect. And uh, overall, it really misdirects responsibility for managing diversion away from the INGO. 
And the most ethical and um, the best way to live out stewardship is to manage our own risks as an organisation. Now, what would you say, Ollie, to someone who is listening to this and perhaps isn't in the most senior role in an organisation, but wants to get a handle on the issue and wants to think really about what they can do, you know, irrespective of how they, where they sit in the hierarchy or where they are active in the world? I mean, are there things that people, irrespective of their position and their location, can actually do in order to do something positive? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you don't have to be in the senior leadership team of your NGO to be a leader and to lead the anti-diversion agenda. Leadership in, in terms of reducing terrorist diversion is about understanding the risk. It's about working with others to make sure that in both your space and their space, you're doing everything you can to manage that risk. It's about educating courageously around you. So it's about not just educating your colleagues and others about the risks, but also about educating the public and donors and regulators and the governments about the implications of, of, of legislation and regulation that hasn't been well thought through. And that's true of fraud and corruption as well. You can be a, an anti-fraud and corruption leader wherever you are and in whatever you're doing in an organisation. We started today talking about your blog, Second Marshmallow, and you said you wanted it to be a positive, optimistic contribution rather than something that made people feel depressed about mm. about the, the challenge they face. Let me ask you in conclusion, what are the things that, that keep you optimistic, that keep you positive and, and give you hope that the sector is is making positive steps in the right direction as far as tackling fraud, corruption and, and, and terrorism diversion goes? Well, first of all, it's the thought that we now know more about human factors and behavioral science than we have ever known in all of human history. And it is such a ripe field for harvesting, for ways to shape and improve our organizations. The other thing that, that, that gives me hope is that fundamentally in the NGO world, and it comes back to the point that I made about optimism, this, these are organizations where the passion is there. And if the passion is there, then the ship is already sailing and it's about where we steer that passion. My guest on this episode of Social X, the podcast from Humentum, was Oliver May. My thanks to him for raising so many important challenges and suggesting they need not be insuperable. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and do send us your suggestions for future episodes via the Social X page of the website at humentum.org. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.